I hope that y'all have had a chance, some of you probably haven't, but to read the book of Job, or at least where we are in our daily readings right now, uh, Job, we're probably over halfway through the book of Job. Um, and just so I'm not assuming anything, could somebody give, like, what's the brief two or three sentence or four sentence synopsis of, like, what happens at the beginning of the book of Job? Just, we're not going to critique your your storytelling, but just what, what happens? Sunday school version. They have a meeting in heaven. Yeah? Yeah. Who, and who shows up? Uh, Satan shows up. And Interestingly, God's, Satan shows up. Yeah. God questions them where you, where you come from, to and fro from the earth. And God throws uh, Job out there. Uh, for what? Uh, I'm assuming to be tested by him, I guess. Okay, that's a good word, tested. Uh, by by whom? Ultimately God, I would say. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, so it seems to be this, this combination of God and um, but some kind of maybe allowing of Satan to, to cause some destruction, guilt like. Um, and then, so what happened? What then happens when God and Satan kind of reach this agreement? Everything Job has gets taken away. His family, his wife, his wealth, his cattle. Everything. Yeah, not. I don't think his wife, right? Or his. But kids. yeah, yeah, his kids, ton, bunch of kids, oxen, sheep, whatever else. There was a there's a connotation between him and him. To, let's see what you can do if you don't have. Yeah, yeah. Like, of course, Job is righteous and he's praising you, God. But yeah. what if you didn't have all this? What if you didn't? Which is basically like a call out, basically. Yeah. In my, in my. Yeah, it's kind of a showdown of sorts. Come right. on, Oil. Um, yeah, so in chapter one, Job loses all, like, his kids and his um, cattle and, and, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep and camels and everything else. Okay. And then in chapter two, um, Satan again is like, hey, well, of course, you haven't, like, it's his life, you haven't touched, we haven't touched his life, and so if we just would strike him with something physically, then he's going to not honor the Lord, and, um, and then what happens, once again, Job seems to be, at least temporarily, seems to be kind of successful in, in not doing what his wife wants him to do, and just kind of cursing God, but he's just like, no, this is what's happened, it's happened, amazing, amazing, um, things going on. I just want to like sit for a second in the loss that Job experienced um, in chapter 1. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to Job 1 and 2. I'm going to have you look for something in there in a minute. Um, but just the loss he experiences in, chap in verses 13 through uh, 19, I guess, of pretty much everything, and um, and it's one thing on top of another, right? It's like, first somebody comes and tells him this, and while that person's still speaking, another person comes and tells him, well, this has also happened, and then another person comes, and it's like four times in a row, there's, um, if we need to get more chairs, I'll look at it. Um, 
four times in a row, destruction, or they're informing Job of destruction, and, and while that's being talked about, it seems somebody else comes and says, oh, by the way, something else is happening. And so I just want to, like, consider that. Like, I, I know that in this room, some of y'all, um, I know all of us have experienced different losses in some ways. Um, and some of us maybe have experienced some extreme losses in our lives. And, um, and so I just want to like consider or, or just kind of think and fathom for a minute, well, maybe you have before, but what Job could have been thinking in this time um, when he, he not only lost all of his stuff, or a lot of his stuff, but he lost like family members, sons and daughters. And, um, and just to just like sit in that for a moment, um, I heard one commentator say that it's like God has given Job a rehearsal for death because he's like, like everything good that Job has in life is, is being taken away from him. Uh, just like, you know, we could say happens at death, like we, we don't get to take anything with us. Um, probably most of us have asked the question before, why is this happening? Um, and specifically, if it's something that directly affects you, why is this happening to me? Or, God, why would you allow this to happen? And um, so I want to look at, at Job's response in verses 20 through 22 of chapter 1. And Job has a lot of response throughout the whole book of Job. Um, but specifically in verses 20 through 22, this is the most fantastic, mind-boggling response to suffering that you could ever fathom or ever read about or hear. Um, now we know, or if, if you've been reading through Job or if you've read it before, you know that Job goes on to begin to ask more questions and he's not quite so silent and and you could argue maybe sometimes he goes a little too far in, in his uh, questioning of God, maybe, maybe not. But um, but at least in the first two chapters, Job res Job's response is above reproach, or it is righteous. And the, the writer of the book makes sure to make that clear. And so in verse 20, um, it says this, Job, uh, after receiving all of this horrific news about his, um, his children and his livestock and servants, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, which are just some typical kind of signs of mourning, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Which, like, <laughs> blows you away, right? Like, it's insane. Um, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. <clears throat> Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I want to ask a question to y'all tonight, and we can um, talk a little bit about this. Um, here's the question. Who caused these horrible things to happen to Job? 
God. Who is behind these things? Okay, so you say God. What what other answers? Satan. Like, Satan. Okay. Satan. Sin. Okay. The Sabians. Okay, the Sabians and the Chaldeans, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the wind. Uh, yeah, if you would spend like, just spend a minute like glancing through chapters one and chapter two and and just kind of try to, to come up with some sort of answer if you can about who who caused these events, who caused, I mean this is again the, the most horrific suffering that we can imagine, especially because it's one thing all piled up on top of another. Um, who, like, who is causing this to happen to Job. Just scan chapters one and chapter two. I'm gonna give you a couple minutes or three or four minutes to do that. Um, and just like, who's, who's doing this? You can start um, if you want in verse six, kind of where David picked up the story, but just read it to yourselves and see who's, who's doing these things. Anything, I, we don't have to get real philosophical here, but do you, what do you find in there that you're like, well, this kind of seems that this, this person is doing this or that. Person. It's almost like from what I read, especially in Job, starting from four, that Satan and God were having a conversation. It's almost like God stepped aside. Okay. I also see a Satan that's asking him to stretch out your hand to touch his bone and his flesh, and then the Lord responds back by giving him that permission to do what yeah. So it's ultimately God's 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 gonna do it, but it's just like well, he the devil wouldn't be able to do anything. Satan wouldn't be able to do anything if it wasn't for God. He's saying, well, yeah. So and the devil knows that, you know. He he understands that that he can't do nothing without it. Uh -huh. Well, it seems like God is testing the devil. Okay, maybe maybe God is testing the devil, or yeah, or or Job. Mm -hmm. Job says to his wife. Mm -hmm. um, Shall we not receive good from God? And so Job is saying that God is um, giving the evil. Yeah, so um, from Job's perspective, and as we read throughout the rest of the book, it certainly seems like the, the stuff that's happened against Job Job thinks this is coming from God, and his friends think this is coming from God. Now, why it happened is up for question, but it seems that, oh, well, God is doing this. And and at the end, of, when God kind of provides some kind of answer at the end of the book, I don't think God says, no, no, it wasn't me, it was that guy, Satan. But it seems that, it, you know, there was um, God's involvement, yeah. It's it's hard, like, it's, it's, it's hard to um, kind of to pick out exactly what's going on here, because verse 8, like you're saying, David, verse 8 says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then in verse 11, Satan answers the Lord and tells the Lord, hey, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And then the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Mm -hmm. um, and then it says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and then we see all these bad things happening. So we could say, well, this seems to be that Satan is, is causing these things or doing these things. Um, but then if you look at the calamities, like in verse 15, the oxen and the donkey and the servants are taken or killed, and that just says the, the Sabians or Sabians fell upon them. Okay, I don't know who's, was that God's doing or Satan, I don't know, but um, 
But then in verse 16, what's it say how the sheep and the servants fell? The fire from God. Yeah, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned them up. Maybe they had a wrong perception, but that's, that's what happened there. Verse 17, again, the Chaldeans, they took them and struck them down. But Job's sons and daughters in verse 19, what happens to them? The wind. Yeah. A great wind comes across the wilderness and strikes the four corners of the house and fell upon them. I don't, I don't think that Satan has control over the wind, but, um, but I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe he can blow something. I don't know. Um, but so who's like who's doing this stuff? Who is stripping Job of his dearest possessions? And I think it is kind of telling what Job himself says in verse twenty-one. It's like what you've read, Melissa, but the Lord gave, and he says, the Lord has taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in chapter 2, it's just as like, well, I don't, I don't know what's going on. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He still holds fast to his integrity, although, listen to what God says, although you, Satan, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Mm-hmm. That sounds kind of like it's, this is God's doing um, at Satan's request. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe all that, the things that were happening, like his donkeys and everything, was probably like, I guess, Satan's idea, and then God's sort of like, well, approved of it or permitted it. Like, all right, we okay. can do this. Well, yeah. then, does it mean he had something to prove to Satan? No. I don't know. And in chapter two, also, um, it's the same kind of back and forth. Satan says to the Lord, stretch out your hand, and Again, the Lord says to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. And chapter 2, verse 7 is real clear. It says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So that seems, well, that's definitely Satan is doing that. Um, But then a couple verses later in verse 9, Job's wife says, Curse God and die. Like, don't, she doesn't think that it's Satan doing it, it's God, but... Job says to her, like Melissa said, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Insinuating from God that God's hand has done this. But Job, that sounds like heresy. Like God doing something um, like this. But the next verse, in, or the next phrase, in all this, it's real clear, Job did not sin with his lips. What he said in Shall we not receive good from God and not also receive evil? Job didn't sin in saying that. So, what caused these horrible things to happen to Job, God or Satan? Um, this is it's a hard, hard question, and I think that I don't think that all of the suffering that we experience is on the same level of God is working this thing with Satan and and testing this righteous person on earth. Um, But I do think we have to wrestle through, and tonight I want to wrestle through a little bit of um, this hard idea that I don't think we can avoid avoid in Scripture, especially as we read through the book of Job, um, of who is behind or enacting difficult things, even suffering. Coming from God? Is it ultimately just from God, or it, where is this coming from? Um, and I'm going to tell you tonight. I don't think there's an easy explanation 
Um, Javon is teaching next week, and he's going to explain everything to you. Um, <laughs> so just save all your questions. Um, just kidding. I mean, he is going to be teaching next week, but um, but I don't want to like just deny or just like skip over. Part. And there's been other difficult things that we've read that we've haven't made mention of, but um, there's difficult things that we have to grapple with is if we believe the scripture to be true and we don't want to be like other religions who take their holy books and then over time they just kind of maybe ignore some things or just erase some things out of there because it doesn't seem quite right um no we have manuscripts from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago and we go to those and we say what they say means what it means and all scripture is breathed out by god and we're not going to try to fudge over whatever it is that it says um, but I will tell you that in 30 minutes from now, you, I don't think, like me and my studies, you won't f leave feeling satisfied, but my hope is that you will leave feeling comforted. So I don't think you'll be satisfied, but I think we can be comforted um, by thinking through this. <clears throat> Topic. And it, y'all, it's so hard to navigate. I've been, I told uh, Clayton this morning, I'm like, I feel like th it, this is on the edge of, like, I want to choose my words very carefully because you could very easily say something heretical when kind of talking about the topic of, of God's sovereignty and how that's, how the, the problem of evil and these things. Um, so I'm choosing my words very carefully. Um, but I'm certainly fallible as well, so um, let's, let's test what I say or compare it with scripture. But I want to wrestle with um, this idea a little bit more uh, by mentioning a couple other verses. Um, in Isaiah, we read a verse in chapter 45, verse 7, um, where God says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Well, that's odd. Um, Genesis 50, 20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is Joseph talking to his brothers who had mistreated him and sold him into slavery. And he tells them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good. Good. <clears throat> to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God had this overarching plan, and um, you meant it, he tells his, his brothers, you meant it for evil, or intended it, is another translation. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Not God turned it into good, but God intended it for good. Um, Sometimes I, I hear people say, and I have said before, this statement, will, that, and it even comes up in our conversation at the beginning, that God has allowed, we use this word, God has allowed such and such to happen. And, and we say that in, in part because, or I've said it in part because, then that doesn't put the responsibility on God. If he's just allowed it, that means that it, it, it wasn't God's fault or God didn't intend it. Um, 
I want you guys to look into this and, and, and get back to me. And um, I don't, I don't see as I look through Scripture the idea of God um, going hands off and kind of allowing something bad to take place. I don't, or I don't see that that word allow. Um, you see God not allowing some things, and you see the word allow, but it's not as if oh there is this bad thing that's going to happen, and God kind of says well I will allow that. I know that like conceptually that that makes sense to us and that's how we kind of communicate things. Um, but we it's it's easier and we like to picture God allowing something and then converting that some bad thing into something good because that's what God is so good at doing. But I wonder if saying aloud God allowed something really isn't just a nice way of saying that God caused it. Because if God allows something, follow me on this logic, if God allows something, then he gave permission for it. And if God gave permission, then he could have stopped it. And if God could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it, then he basically chose it. And if God chose it, then God willed it. And if God willed it, then God caused it. So I'll say it again. If God allowed something, that means he gave permission. Like with Job, he gave permission for something. And if he gives permission for something that we know that he's sovereign and in control, that means that he could have stopped that something from happening. But if he didn't stop it, then that's, that's what he chose to happen, you could say. And if he chose that, then that was part of his will. And if he willed it, then he caused it, I think you could say. Um, let's take the evilest act possible that ever occurred in history. God's son killed. Should we say, would, would it be most biblically accurate to say God allowed the killing of Jesus? And then he turned that into good. He then figured out kind of how to make that into a good thing. The book of Acts says that Jesus, who was delivered up, according to the definite, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he says, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. The men were lawless. They were doing evil things. They crucified and killed Jesus. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's perfect good plan being carried out through lawless men. Acts 4 says something similar. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, whatever your plan had predestined to take place. So God chose a plan, and in that plan it included the atrocity atrocity of of causing the the suffering and and the death of his son now so so i don't go off into heresy um does this make god the author of evil Let's look at a couple other verses Genesis 1:30 God saw everything that he made and behold it was what Good. It was very good. All of God's creation is very good. We can conclude that God did not create evil. And these are just kind of some highlight verses to, to show these things. There's others to 
point to the same thing. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. We could conclude that God doesn't desire evil, or doesn't delight in it. 1 John 1.5, we need to remember this in this discussion, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that's not just talking about the level of Kelvin and lumens, but you know, obviously this is talking about good and evil or, or sin and, and perfection. So, but we can include if there's no darkness in God at all, that God is, there's nothing in him that is inherently, or there's no evil in him. He's all good, all perfect, entirely good. So why, like, so why do we have evil and suffering and, and death and these things? Who's, here's another question, another word to use. Whose fault is sin and evil and consequences, then suffering, death? Whose fault, would you say, are those? Man. Yeah, mankind. Um, Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through not God, not even Satan, came through one man. And death through sin and death spread to all men because all have sinned. So whose fault is sin and suffering and death? Well, it's, it's mankind. And maybe we can blame a little, a little bit. We can include Satan in on there because he did the tempting and whatever. But mankind is at fault for these things and the repercussions of our sin. But when, when God pronounced pain in childbirth to Eve, whose fault was the pain? Well, it was Eve's fault. But who caused that pain of childbirth for her and future generations? It says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Okay? God pronounced painful work for Adam. It was Adam's fault God says, because you have sinned, Adam, you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of this tree, th this is what is going to happen to you. It's Adam's fault. However, God, God caused that. He said, here's, here's what is going to happen now because of that. So the fault, if we, like, that's a, I think that's a key word and something that um, we should remember, or, or the one to blame, you could say, for... Um, sin and evil and then the, the occurring or the, the subsequent suffering and death that that caused is, is always ours or it's, it's humankind. And other religions are going to tell you other things, that the fault is outside of me somewhere. Um, but that's the humble admission of what we believe as Christians, that, that the problem exists within ourselves. And so the solution actually comes outside of ourselves. So the fault is our own, you could say, or mankind. But I don't think we can be honest with Scripture and remove God's sovereign hand from being actively involved in, in bringing about pain or trials. So ultimately, Job's suffering was not God's fault but it was God's doing. Not God's fault. And, I mean, you could argue, well, it wasn't Job's fault. He was perfect and righteous and whatever. Um, but, but the fault still lies with the state of humanity and this, this um, seed of sin that's passed down throughout all. We're born into sin. And this. 
but Job's suffering wasn't God's fault, but it was um, his doing. Now, I know that it's like kind of um, brain gymnastics to kind of think about these things. And I know, like, I've got uh, more to share, and I, I, I don't want you to check out because you're, like, bothered by, well, that doesn't kind of line up with what I think. Um, like God being somehow actively involved in suffering. But I remind you that um, you probably don't argue with the fact that God brings suffering and judgment to, upon evil to begin with. Like God certainly in his justice does that. And you probably wouldn't argue with the fact that God causes pain, Hebrews 12 talks about, in his children as discipline to them. So there are elements of God's involvement and pain that we already agree with, yet we understand and submit to, but God is good. We believe that he's good. Um, so, like, why do I even bring this up? Like, why would I make us try to think in a way that just makes, well, God, you know, God's been a, he's a pain causer. Like, what good could that do to have that kind of, you know, attitude and for us to think that way? And I, I want to tell you guys, I don't think it's just a, it's just a neat kind of thing to think about or, or to wrestle through, though it is kind of like to think about the problem of evil, like maybe there's people that like to just talk through that and um, get real excited about that. But I believe, like I said at the beginning, I believe that we should actually be comforted by the fact that God's sovereign hand is actively involved in trial and in pain and in suffering. And I believe it's actually better that God causes than God allows. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you um, a few reasons why I think that's the case. So, um, and this is a little less exp expositional than I would maybe normally be doing, but um, believing God's sovereignty in suffering. Um, five reasons uh, just why this is actually comforting to us, believing God's sovereignty and suffering. One, it reminds us that God is in control right now. Like in, in your suffering right now, God is in control. He's not just in ultimate control, like eventually he will make everything right, though he will, but he's in control of my circumstances right now. And God is perfectly familiar with what we are going through because it's part of his good design. And he is with us through it. He's not sitting back, not kind of hands off, but he's guiding our growth to become like Christ through the suffering. And I think it's comforting to know that every little victory that Satan seems to have in, in, in that economy is actually predetermined to accomplish God's plan. It's not like God is trying to keep up with all of these things that Satan is doing, these attacks, as if he doesn't expect that they're going to happen. And from God's perspective, Satan is never winning. Not even for a moment is Satan winning. And I feel hopeless sometimes when I look at suffering or trial that's going on in me or around me. I think, man, God is standing back. And it seems that Satan is, in, he, Satan is having his way here without God's hand. He's just unchecked. And I think in our experience and maybe in Satan's experience, it might feel like 
he's in control of the situation. He's just the one ultimately causing these things. But somehow in the infinite, majestic mind of God, it is already determined. And Satan is this created being who is flopping around trying to wage war against a creator who controls his very ability to exist. And it's comforting to know that Satan only works in ways that are subordinate to God and God's sovereign hand. And y'all, as much as I don't want to say that, well, God is in control of suffering, I would much rather God be in control of it than Satan be in ultimate control of it. God is in control of my and your difficult circumstances right now. Whatever it is that you're going through, it, it, it's not, oh my gosh, do, what is God going to do? Well, eventually he's going to work this into something good. No, God has purposed it for, for right now. And it's not his fault, but he is involved in bringing about. Believing God's sovereignty and suffering, secondly, it reminds us that suffering is for our good. Um, I don't have to tell you this, but Satan doesn't do things for our good. Um, he wants bad things for us. And if we chalk up suffering and the control behind that is purely Satan's doing, then that's bad news for us. And we might feel defeated in that. Um, but when God does things, when God purposes things, it's always for our good. And I don't know how to explain how like logically, how God's always good sovereign hand works seemingly in tandem with Satan's evil subordinate hand in suffering. But I know this, Satan means to use these things to destroy you. God means to use them to build you. Satan means to use suffering to cause you to distrust God. God means to use that to cause you to trust him more. Satan means it for evil. God means it for good. So if God's in control ultimately of it rather than Satan, it results in our good. And I can be comforted by that. I think we should be comforted by that. And like Romans 8, um, David and I were just talking about, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So I want God to be behind the wheel when it comes to suffering because he's using it for my good. Believing God's sovereignty and suffering reminds us that our suffering is for our good. Um, thirdly, believing God's sovereignty and suffering reminds us of God's undeserved gifts in our lives. So everything that we have, everything, everything that we have is an undeserved gift of God. We call it grace, right? Suffering, if you think about it, oftentimes... Suffering is the removal of some good gift that, that God has given to us or when we lose that gift. Like maybe you can think of the most intense suffering that you've had in your own life and it's like, well, it was because I had this really good thing and then it was taken from me. Um, so think about Job. He had lots of great things, it seems, that God had, in his grace, that Job didn't deserve, had provided for him from children and a wife and cattle. And it seems like he was living the high life. Um, Job didn't have those blessings at birth, and he wouldn't take those blessings with him at death. 
so he says in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Like none of these good gifts, that these temporal gifts that God has given me will I take with me. In the same way, we don't deserve any good gift that God has given to us. We don't deserve it. So when we have something taken away, call it suffering, then one thing that reminds us is of God's grace in giving it to us at all. And if you notice in verse 21, again, this is hard to kind of reconcile, but to whom does Job attribute having things taken away? Like, who has taken things away from him? He, he says, God, the, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He doesn't say the Lord has given and Satan has taken away, which you could probably also argue. I mean, Satan does seem to be actively involved in these things. But I wonder if, if, if Job's perspective was the Lord has given and Satan has taken away, if he wouldn't start to make this argument about fairness and, well, it's not fair. God gave me these things and Satan took these things. And then again, it kind of looks like Satan's winning. And I think without a proper perspective of who has given things and who has taken things, over, if we don't have a good perspective on out of where these good gifts have come from, then we begin to think all of a sudden, well, I deserve this or I have a right to these things, to what God has given to me. But grace is not a right. Good health that we have from God is not a right. It is given to us as a grace of God. Children are not a right that we have. They're given by the grace of God. Material possessions are not a right that we have, but they're given to us by the grace of God. Technically, we're, we have a right to nothing. We are created. We're creations of God. And we're entitled to nothing. God says uh, in Matthew 20, 15, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Um, saying it's not fair, doesn't. It, that's not possible in God's economy. He gave and he takes away. I guess you could say maybe it's not fair that God has given these things to you in the first place, if you want, just fairness. But the Lord is not wrong in taking away what he has graciously given. And if you notice in verse 22, it mentions that Job isn't charging God with wrong. He's not, he's not, um, He didn't blame God for doing something that um, charging God with wrong is this idea of, he, he, didn't, he wasn't saying God did anything inappropriate or unseemly. Um, which is interesting, because it's like, God, you gave me this and then you took this away. You would think, well, that doesn't sound quite right, but Job says, God, in, all, in, in these things, you were not wrong in doing this. Um, quick personal story, when I was, um, in high school, I guess, maybe even before, well, yeah, young, probably freshman in high school, I had, um, uh, well, my sister is three years older than me, and we happened to hang out with a lot of friends. She's the cooler, older sister, and we had, I would hang out with her older friends, and um, and I would be able to stay out late. I mean, I thought this was late. My parents were pretty strict, so when I had like a one o'clock a.m. curfew, it was like, man, this, this is really amazing. My parents really trust me, and this is really cool. Um, one o'clock, wow. But then when I like became a sophomore or junior, and my sister, I, like she goes off to college, and we stopped hanging out with the same group of people, all of a sudden my curfew 
got changed back to like midnight or 11.30 or something else. And I, I was so just upset at my parents that you, like you trusted me and you gave me this. And I didn't do anything, like I literally, I, it wasn't that I just went out and got plastered one night and so they couldn't trust me anymore. Or I just hung out with the wrong people. But they just took away that good thing that they had given to me. And um, I mean, this kind of gets into maybe kind of what the end of the book of Job talks about, but I, looking back on it, believe that my parents in that actually were concerned about my good and taking that good thing away. I no longer had my big sister to kind of watch out for me. Mm -hmm. And so for my own sake, not that they didn't trust me, but they're just like, hey, we're gonna kind of back that off a little bit. Maybe you can work back up to one o'clock when you're a senior. Um, I think we have to learn that God is able to be good, yet still take good things away. And I want to be sure that we rejoice together that there are some things that are promised to us eternally that he has promised to not take away our inheritance in heaven with Christ. Like that's not, there's, it, it's, it's been written, if you read Ephesians 1, like this, this is, God has said, this will not be taken away from you, these things that we have eternally. Um, but we shouldn't curse God for taking away what in this life will eventually be taken away at death. And sometimes the good things that God takes away in this life points us to the grace of the one who gave it in the first place. So I guess that's my point. Believing God's sovereignty and suffering reminds us of God's undeserved gifts in our life that we get to enjoy for however long it is in our lives. Um, fourthly, believing God's sovereignty and suffering helps us not avoid Christ-likeness. Believing God's sovereignty and suffering, just think about it, helps us, I know it's a double negative, kind of helps us not avoid Christ-likeness. 1 Peter 2, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his sins. If, if Satan is controlling the suffering, then I'm going to run from it. If God is in control, then somehow I supernaturally want it because I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus, the man of sorrows. If we want to be like Jesus in all of his glory, then let's pray to God that he would help us to suffer like Jesus. And it will make us look more like Jesus. And I'm comforted by the fact that God is in control and he's molding me in my suffering to be more like my Savior, Jesus. Um, and then the last thing, um, believing God's sovereignty and suffering, it begins to, it begins to answer the question of why. Um, why, God, is this happening to me? Why would you let this happen to me? Have you ever like wallowed around in that question for a while when something <laughs> like rough has, has hit you? Why is this happening? And then the more time you spend kind of asking the question what happens, oftentimes 
you get de more depressed, you, you start feeling like, well, God is just against me, and maybe eventually you kind of get over it because the circumstances change a little bit, but then when the next thing happens, you think, oh, God, you're doing this again, or, you know, what, and you have just, maybe there's some, like, bitterness that's left over because you're, you haven't been able to answer that question why. Um, God's sovereignty and suffering, and this, this fact that he is in control, even of our difficult times, begins to answer that question, I think, of, of why, with, because God is doing something. And I know it's not, like, completely satisfying, but God is doing something is much more comforting to me than God is allowing Satan to do this to me because he knows that eventually he's going to build me back up, so who kind of cares what happens now? So I guess, like, one thing I want you guys to just see tonight is that God, for, for whatever, you're probably not suffering to the extent that Job is. Um, though a lot of us have experienced some deep, deep suffering. Um, but I want us to, what I want us to see is that God is not passively allowing the suffering. And he's determining it. That word allow is too passive of a word. God isn't sitting back kind of letting the world get the best of us. Like, okay, Satan, I guess you can just have some, cause some pain in this child of mine for a little bit. God proactively tells Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So when we ask God, why don't you do something? We're asking God to react as, as if he's inactive. And I think God would respond, I am. I am doing something. Will you trust me in what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. And so again, I, I know that doesn't like just feel satisfying, like, oh, oh good, that answers all of our questions. Um, but I hope that you can see some comfort in these things. Believing God's sovereign hand in suffering, it reminds us that God's in control right now of, of whatever you're going through. It's not like, it's not taking him by surprise. He's not just like, well, we'll just kind of see what Satan does right here, or what, you know, what, what the evil in the world kind of amounts to. No, God is very aware of what's going on there. He's in control of these things right now. He's not just letting Satan do his damage, and he's going to work later. God, believing in God's sovereignty and suffering reminds us that suffering is for our good. Like, Satan wants our destruction, but God wants our good. And so I want him in charge of that. Believing God's sovereignty and suffering, it reminds us of all of the undeserved gifts in our life. He has given us so many things. Um, some of those will be taken away. Some of those he promises not take, to take away, but we can rejoice in this grace that God gives us, which we never deserved in the first place. And believing in God's sovereignty, it helps us to not avoid or run from Christ-likeness that we find in suffering. That's one of the ways we most know, it seems like Paul, it's the way he most knows his saviors and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think, oh, that God would give us that kind of suffering where we are connected with Christ. So, why is this, whatever it is, why is this happening to me? Because in a fallen world, God has chosen it for you. And though the specific trial that you face it, it might not be your fault, but God has 
chosen it, not just he's allowed it, he's going to let Satan kind of win for a moment and later convert it into something good, but he intends it. Mm. He's chosen it for you. And the why has he chosen it for you? I don't know. It may be as a form of discipline and training in righteousness, like we read in Hebrews 12. It may be to produce steadfastness and perfection and faith in you, like we read in James 1. It may be meant to cause you just to fear and worship and trust the Lord, like we see Job doing. But be assured and, and be comforted that it's God's, not God's fault, it's God's good doing and his plan to make us into the image of Christ. So, um... Let me pray, and then maybe we'll discuss for a little bit. Father, um, this is hard. I don't. Uh, I certainly don't know that everything that I've said is is right on. Um, but I do know that you are you are sovereign. That nothing takes you by surprise. That you have a plan that can't be thwarted. Um, and I do know the end result of everything is that you uh, win. <laughs> And so that tells me that you're in control. Um, God, I also confess, I think all of us would confess that um, we don't understand how everything works together when it comes to the difficulties of this life. I take responsibility, I confess that much of the difficulty that is brought about in my own life is because of my own sin and not living according to what you've called me to live and so either by um, discipline or whatever it is in my life you you correct me and sometimes that's painful um, but it's my it's my doing and sometimes Lord it seems that we will suffer from the example of Job from the example of the blind man in the New Testament um, sometimes the the suffering the trials that we experience aren't a result of our particular sin that we've done it's not as if you're disciplining or punishing us um, but at that time we recognize God there that we are we are all infected from birth with sin and it has permeated the world and um, this is not uh, this is not the end suffering and pain and evil uh, certainly isn't how things were created in the garden and certainly isn't how things will turn out in the end. Uh, but in, in the world that we live in, in the condition that we live in, and the responsibility that we even can take for our own sin, um, God, we trust that you are working in spite of all those things, that you are good, that you are working things according to your plan for our good, for your glory, and whatever we can't understand about that, I just kind of lift up to you and say, well, this is your thoughts. It's not my thoughts. This is for you to understand. I can't fully grasp it. Um, but God, would you help us to trust you? Thank you for the example of Job, at least in these first couple of chapters, and what we can learn from him, that worship and trust can take place regardless of circumstances, even if we believe that those things have come as a result of your hand in our life. We can worship you. We can trust you. You want what is good for us, and we believe that, Lord.